Mark, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. G'day. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You, uh, man, you, you were, uh, we were cracking up. We were trying to set this up. Obviously you're in Australia and it was like, uh, I kept saying like Thursday and you're like, no, it's Friday for me. Uh, and you said you've been driving for, you were over at your parents' house and you're doing a bunch of podcasts today. Yeah. So that dedication to the podcast. So I got up at 4am and drove three, three, three and a half hours back to here to, I got home about 10 minutes ago to be right to, so all right time did well so dedication time did well man i appreciate that yeah. uh, i appreciate that a ton thank you for being here you're somebody i followed for a super super long time um and definitely excited to chat with you I have a couple of, like main topics that we're going to go through but you're you're you know what actually it's like i don't actually know a ton about your backstory you don't need to go super in depth from like conception here but uh just yourself getting into the space and i know you're like a physique competing uh physique coaching background but just give it give me and the listener a little bit of backstory where you come from and kind of what you're doing these days sure that's fine i was just chatting about me being on more podcasts lately and now it's just like getting your your, your backstory out it's like all right how can i how can i make it quality without dragging it on um so pretty simple um I have a business coach, Mark Carroll, and I also have an education company, Carroll Performance Health, which certifies personal trainers around the world. Um, I've been in the industry for almost, I think, 16 years now this year or next year. And yeah, so I train people, I guess, from all kind of abilities in, in the gym, you know, resistance training, physique focused, um, improving body composition, you name it. And yes, I've trained um basically i guess a lot of more pro bikini competitors these days um privately and then i have programs for everybody who just wants to obviously train intelligently lift intelligently and improve their body composition so it's kind of like a i guess a regression of you you know you got your comp prep level kind of training but then to me it's all kind of the same you know if you're trying to get stronger build muscle eat well it's just the level of of complexity you want to go. And so that's kind of my focus. And um, yeah, I've trained, you know, numerous world bikini champions. I've trained, um, yeah, certain times of, I think eight, 10 female influencers with over a million followers and stuff like that. So I've trained a lot of pretty big name fitness people and yeah, and and I lectured around the world a fair bit, um, a fair few years ago and stuff like that. So I've done, I guess, a lot of different things, but these days now it's my main businesses. Um, Coach Mark Carroll and recently started podcasts and stuff like that. So just a bit of everything like most people these days. Cool. You, uh, yeah, I definitely know you for your like physique competitor coaching side. Um, and I'm curious, you even said, you're like, hey, that's kind of like what I do or did for the most part and then kind of regressed into building programs for people across all different experience levels. And you kind of had a, like a throw in there of like, oh, it's kind of the same shit. There's definitely a lot of overlap, but uh, but you've worked with like the the tip of the top of the, like you said, WBNF or whoever, like a physique competitor, like absolute top of the top people that are looking for, you know, just so far beyond like the just general, I want to get, I want to get healthy, stay healthy. Or I want to build some muscle or I want to look a little bit more toned or whatever. You've taken it to the absolute nth degree. What are some of the things that you, you do find are a little bit different when you're dealing with that sort of a clientele who's like looking for like a hyper amount of specificity? You know, like often... <laughs> Before I got into the comp prep space, I was kind of told, you know, how hard it is and all this stuff. And honestly, I personally actually find it easier than general population because the thing is with comp prep and advanced people is they just will do whatever you tell them to do. There's there's no issue with um, sticking to the plan and following it. So that's the best thing about um, working with elite people. It's just the 
the set level of adherence and stuff like that. Um, and the, the main thing is honestly with training more advanced people is the level to detail year round, you know? So obviously I do transformations and stuff like that with general population clients and stuff like that. And, you know, from comp prep to transformation, and I think they all just have the same, the same base, you know? So it's obviously trying to improve body composition, build muscle, get leaner, it's just the level of detail, you know, go on taking someone who is a female from 22% to 14, 15% body fat is a big difference. There's so much more layers and health factors and stuff like that. But the thing with working with more advanced people is that they also have such a, a good base of habits and skills to actually navigate getting that really lean and they'll do whatever you tell them to do. So it's, that's the issue with working with a gen pop. It's more going to be adherence. They have big goals, but do they actually have the adherence or even the potential stress management, time commitments to do a lot of great things? So that's why working with really top level people is fun and enjoyable because it's not a matter of of coaching them to be like, oh, please do it. Can you please just? I know if you stick to the plan, you can do it. It's a matter of you just know whatever you do. And when you have a good understanding of the knowledge, how to do it, they'll, they'll follow it. And that's that's why for me these days, it's anyone I work with, it's just always basically a home run because obviously I've been working with people for so long. I know what works, I know what doesn't work. And I know and you know, I have so many structures to how to individualize things to a specific individual. So that's why it's really fun working with advanced people, but it's also still fun working with general population people because it adds another, I guess, complexity to trying to deliver an awesome result. Yep, I agree. Let's say you're looking at, um, listen, even 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 people that are just like trying to be elite uh, are all in that same category of like, okay, on average, they're going to be a little bit more motivated. On average, they have a lot of the basics down. What do you think you've seen separates someone who's going to go on and win competitions and be the best in the world and be that top 10 and, and stay there for a long time versus someone who's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm really into it, but I'm just not taking it to that next level. Are we talking genetics? Are we talking about some like underlying hunger to, to like push on when things get hard? Is it, is it the train harder? There's some people diet harder. There's better adherence, better mindset. Is there something that separates even those people all the way at the top? As unenjoyable as it is to say, genetics always plays a massive part, you know? So it's not even a genetic standpoint of the ability to necessarily have the muscles and the shape and stuff to look amazing on stage. Something I've really noticed with working with advanced people for a long time, it's their ability to stay in good condition year round so that when they do do a prep, it's not the worst experience of their life. So someone like Lauren, my partner, when I coached her to be world bikini champion, even in a build, you know, where we're pushing it, she's only four or five kilos away from stage. So dropping someone four or five kilos who's experienced and adhered, adherence wise, it's just you can something you can do with your eyes closed. Whereas other women I've trained who look great on stage, but just body-wise, they had such, I guess, more of it like an efficient metabolism. So they were just very, you know, a defense mechanism. So we had to just go such low calories to get the results, such high calorie expenditure. And for me, I just don't feel like prep should just be the worst thing in the world when you're you're not it's not even your job it's not like you're getting paid for it so i'm a big believer in the people who do really well in physique space obviously has a longevity to it they do well year round they just get a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better and they just build on it but it comes really naturally to them the habits the enjoyment factor and it's not it's not such a painful slog like 
again, I'll use Lauren, for example, my partner, is that she enjoys eating healthy. She enjoys eating protein. She enjoys training. She enjoys all these things. It's not a, oh, man, I have to train because I, I, you know, I have to be healthy or it's not doing a, oh, I have to lose weight because I, I feel so bad about myself. It's not kind of getting out of pain. It's more so training and these goals are actually shooting for pleasure. And so that's a big difference. So a lot of people do things, you know, out of such low self-esteem and, you know, for even myself, you know, I've got out of shape and I'm like, oh, I'm going to Hawaii in a couple of months. I'm like, oh, I need to get in shape. Whereas a lot of the people who have the really, really top people, they just have an amazing ability just to continually do the little things well. They don't fall off and they just build and build. And I, I kind of like to use the term is, is accumulate wins. So you can accumulate little wins each day that lead to, you know, big wins over the week. But the good people, they accumulate years, years and years and years and years and years. And that's the, I think the big difference when you're asking the difference between gen pop and advanced people are advanced people just, don't necessarily fall off as much. So, you know, I have my, I have a gen pop, they do an amazing transformation. You see it all the time. And then six months later, they look worse than they did when they started. And that's their, pre, they're constantly one step forward, two steps back. Whereas with really advanced people, it's just might not seem like it at a time, but you know, as yourself, when you're trying to build a squat or something, five, 10 kilos doesn't seem like a lot added to your squat. But if you do that every six months for seven, eight, 10 years, it adds up. Yeah. And I can imagine that you're, if you have somebody who like like has a really difficult prep, really doesn't in, doesn't doesn't find in a like there's a, a cliche of enjoying the process, but if you hate the process so much that by the time you get on stage, I'm betting by the way I've never competed, and you're one of the only like I've had Steve Hall on here, I've had some other people talk a little bit about competitors, but it's definitely not my bread and butter. But I can imagine if your prep is so bad, and I don't just mean so bad because it's tough. It's always tough. It's probably always going to be difficult. But if you're someone who can't really have all those habits so ingrained that that it can be that you can find the positives in it, you probably are more likely to spend the, re- the other nine months out of the year gaining a little bit too much, uh, you know, going back on those habits and, and staying a little bit further from stage. And then by the time it's time, by the time, you know, it's time to get ready to start the, the prep, you're a little bit further away. And that means cut's going to be a little bit longer or harder, which kind of are synonymous. A longer prep is probably in some ways harder and, and could be in some ways e- easier or less bad in a nuanced way. But I could see that where you're like, listen, you really got to kind of fall in love with these habits of like going to the gym and, and eating relatively nutritious most of the time and eating enough protein and getting your sleep and all that stuff so that by the time prep comes, it's not like this giant 180 where all of a sudden life was good and now it fucking sucks for something that's not even your job. And so I could see that. Yeah, definitely. I'll, you, go ahead. I'll, I'll, so I'll just add, it's like a way to kind of think about it is kind of like from working with so many women is let's say you you have two women and they're both, their TDE is say 2,200, all right? So you'll have the same training ability, kind of same body fat levels when they begin, they might need to lose, you know, 15, 18 pounds to get on stage. One woman, she starts at a TD at, you know, um, 2,200. So she starts, say, on a 400 calorie deficit at 1,800 calories. Over 16 weeks, her 1,800 calories finishes at 1,500 calories, 10,000 steps a day and two cardio sessions. But then you have a similar, another client, same goals, same comp, same body fat, muscle, whatever, initially. And her prep starts at 2,200 as well. Um, sorry, TDE is 2,200. She starts on 1,800. She needs to finish on um, 1,100 calories. She needs to finish on 16,000 steps. She needs to finish on um, six days of cardio. And they look exactly the same. So that's the kind of thing is that 
people just don't realize it's not that the other person worked harder. It's just their body's response to dieting is so different. One person has a more defensive mechanism kicked in. The other person just seems to lose, has a more, I guess, inefficient metabolic type. So they just lose and lose and lose. And so they both look the same at the end. They both look amazing, but one person has suffered so much more. And I'm always just to think, well, how much can, you know, you suffer once? Okay, you did that once, but can you do this a year again, another year, or do another show nine months later and keep doing it? So that's the kind of the way I look at competing is that you need to weigh it up, you know, can you look great for one day? Cool. You had a photo shoot. That's it. But the, as we, as we said, it's the repetition of competing year after year and getting better and better and better. That's where it really comes at a cost, that severe difference. That, that is a ton of, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, when we talk about genetics, a lot of what I think people would have gone to, which I think we both meant to was like, just, just your muscle architecture and your anthropometry and the, your muscle in your, where the muscle insertion points and kind of what you look like when you fill out and all of that stuff. That's really not in your control to some degree. But this is a different form of genetics in terms of just the way your metabolism is uh, and how it adapts to lower calories. And it's funny that you're on, and I didn't plan on talking about this, but I actually have a question. And it's good that it's you because it is a specific to bodybuilders as an extreme example of something. So so lately there's been like, a, yeah, if you, if you were to browse my page for two seconds, you'd see that in the last five posts or so, I've been on a little bit of like a reverse dieting tirade, you could say. Um, this idea that if I... If somebody's been, and I'm going to just, I'm going to throw it to you with a specific question, I promise, so we don't need to like go into all these different contexts, but um, if somebody increases their calories slowly, and in doing so, they are finding out how much their metabolism can upregulate, which is an, an, just the opposite of what we were just talking about, which is like, how much does somebody's metabolism downregulate uh, in terms of just metabolic adaptation downwards, and if this person increases their calories nice and slow, that A, they won't lose fat, they won't gain any fat, and B, the part I'm gonna throw to you is that it will change how their body adapts to calories next time. And I'm gonna give you a specific question because when people are like, no, that, that will happen. If you, if you boost your calories now, you can return to these calories that weren't working prior and now they'll work. And my thought is that like, if you, my guess is, and I'm gonna ask you to confirm or deny, is that if you have a, a female, let's say you have a female, you work with her for like multiple, multiple years getting to stage, what, what that person has done is they've gotten really, really lean and they've seen a lot of metabolic adaptation, right? Somebody gets super, super lean, their metabolism is suppressed, it's totally normal, part of that's weight loss, part of that's like a reduction in subconscious movement, all of that stuff. And then they spend the rest of the year out of that state. And so they get out of a deficit, right? Once you're, the show's over, they do like a, a real like quote reverse diet where they get themselves back to maintenance. So far I'm tracking, yes, that's that's what you guys would do, right? You'd, you'd bring their calories back up in some structured manner. When you diet that person again for their next year show and for their next year show, like, is it on some level about just going back to that same fucking place? Like, is there no escaping? Hey, if you want to get this lean, like for this person, you have to go to this place or over years and years of going down and then reverse dieting magically back up, you can increase where those calories end up. Or is it like, man, you know, the first time you did this, you got mega fucking lean. You had to go to 1100 calories and that's realistically what's going to happen for you all of the time. All right, so let me let me. I, I, I'll ask I, you a more I, specific question. If you diet somebody down and they get on stage and they're, I'm going to make something up. They're they're 60 kilos, right? I, I, we do pounds, but I'll say 60 kilos, 130 pounds, or something like that. And it took you X amount of calories and X amount of cardio and X amount of steps, right? You just gave that example. Of that woman, it's like six times a week cardio, 15,000 steps, 13, 1100 calories. 
the next time that person gets on the stage, is it going to take something incredibly similar to get to that same place? Or in some way, did boosting their metabolism in the offseason change how they would adapt this time around during prep? All right, so can I, I'll give you a long answer. Okay? Yeah, I'd, long, I'd love that. Because I have a program called The Art of Reverse Dieting, you know, so 20,000 of these, you know, so, so, and my, so obviously I've, you know, I've made a, a lot of money off that, but my constant education is constantly evolving from that. So some things I, I thought about reverse dying was that it was much more magical back in the day than what I probably think now. So RE reverse dieting, does it make you all of a sudden go from say, let's say your TDE, your, your TDE even before dieting was 2,200 calories again, and you diet down. Does a reverse diet all of a sudden make you go have a TDE of 2,400 calories, 2,500 calories? No, because your TDE is related to your total body mass, um, primarily your activity levels, your neat levels and stuff like that. When you spend, again, so I, I've got a really good idea of this because Basically, my online clients, I probably have online clients longer than anyone in the world, my private clients. I've had them for about four or five years, and they do show, no show, show, no show, year on, year off, or sometimes two years off. So a recent client of mine, Emily, who I coached for, who won the Australian WFFB bikini show in October, um, it took us about three years to get to stage because of COVID. Now, she always was a person who struggled to kind of get lean, even though she was on top of things. And the previous prep we did before COVID, which got canceled the show, she had to get really low calories when I first started with her. I was like, oh, shit, okay, that's low calories. So then we spent two years in a build, two years, full two years in a build where you think like true build. She got too too, too much body fat. She had her boobs done. So, again, she got even fatter and stuff like that for her, her herself. So when we started prep, right, she was even higher weight and stuff like that, and we had to drop 15 kilos. But long story short, despite having two years in a surplus, she still needed to get to absolutely horrible calories for her because that's just her body's response to dieting. Likewise, I've had other girls who've done shows and they've had only eight weeks and we had to get them really low calories to get lean because they decided to do a show. And then we had had to do another show in about five, six months. So we quickly put, put the calories back up or, and then actually reverse diet up or whatever. And then despite not spending much time in a surplus, when we brought them back down to a deficit, they just lost easily on high, on high calories. So we didn't even do that. So point, I guess my point is, is that your response to dieting and fat loss is extremely genetic. So doing a reverse diet, I don't believe in any way is going to all of a sudden change someone's response to or ability to necessarily diet on lower calories and change that inherent kind of metabolic, inefficient or efficient metabolic type. So the way I look at reverse dieting is it's a controlled exit strategy. It's a strategy to control weight regain. But does that mean everyone should reverse diet? No. Does that mean ever? And this is this is the one thing I really not get frustrated, but people think reverse dieting is like a one size fits all approach to how quickly you increase calories. A reverse dieting can be literally four four weeks. It can be twelve weeks. It can be sixteen weeks. It really depends. So, for example, if you have someone who competes and gets really lean, but then 
they want to do a couple a month or so of photo shoots, which is what women do. I need to keep them lean, but I'm, I want to also still simultaneously still build their calories up because I don't need them to get any leaner, but I can comp, want to still building up their calories a touch to at least maintain, but I don't want to go so high where they're going to put on weight. So you can go a bit higher and reverse. Maybe instead of going up, say, and say their difference where they finished a prep and their TDE is 800 calories, you could just go up, but then you, they're going to put on weight if you jump. So I might go up 400 calories. So it's a, still a large increase, but also gets the neat levels moving and et cetera. So that's one way. You can also do um, a, a, you know, an eight-week, 12-week. It really depends. But basically now I'd say, especially for competitors, being so lean, putting on some weight quickly is always probably going to be a bit more positive than doing it really, really slowly. So I'm always... So let's say if they go from, you know, you say, say they finish on 1,200 and their TD is 2,400. The thing I hate is when people go 1,300, 14, it's just moronic. The goal should be to take realistically where their current TDE is. So if they're on, if they're, if they're losing at a snail pace on around 1,200 calories, you might start at 1,700 calories. So you just still do a big jump. It's not this tiny jump. And then you build up progressively because for a variety of reasons and something else people don't take into enough is just a psychological standpoint of let's say people come to me and they have a client or I have a client, sorry, and they struggled with weight loss for years, three, four years, haven't been able to lose weight. They do one of my methods. All of a sudden they actually understand calorie counting. They lose weight finally. And after 12 weeks, you just go, all right, let's just bump calories up. They're going to be like, what? Like I finally lost weight. And like, like, like what well, I'm, I'm terrible. Like, I, I can't do that. I'm finally lean. I feel amazing. And you're telling me to add 900 calories. So those people are, again, a great way to have an exit strategy of slowly building their calories up to give them the confidence of, oh my God, I can eat more and not just go straight back to what I once was. Oh my God, I can eat 700 calories more and still stay fit, healthy and strong and maintain this. And oh my God, I can now eat 600, 700 calories more and now I can crush my sessions even more. I can see those strength gains and all these things. So it, there's many ways to go about. So I can, I could, I, I was on another podcast where I was like, I could literally debate myself either way because I'm so pro and I'm so con for different situations. And it's just like everything. There's a pro and a con for everything. And that's why, again, obviously, you know, I like Cassim when he talks about N of one and it's very much an N of one, but there's definitely nothing. I don't believe from working with so many people for years at a high level that, even if you spend six months, two years in a build, does it mean they necessarily lose that their inherent larger defense mechanism for certain people? So I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but that's- It, yeah. it answers it perfectly. It's exactly the, 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 this, when we talk about reverse dieting, and I didn't even mean for this to turn to reverse dieting, and we could pivot in a second, but because it's just been beating that to a horse lately, um, is the, the context of, hey, I've been in a deficit and it's time for me to return to new maintenance at a rate that you are saying, which I would agree with, is like very personal with the client that you are dealing with. Um, like you said, it, it, how how shitty does my client feel? That might dictate me wanting to go a little bit faster. How long do they want to remain lean? Maybe they're doing photo shoots. I might take a different approach where it's a small chunk and then progressively slower from there. If I have a client who feels like absolute dog shit and they're still losing very quickly and they're very notably in a still deficit, we might do a larger chunk. I totally am on board with this. Like, I think, I think in the beginning, reverse dieting was this a miracle. Mm -hmm. And then it was totally shit on in, in entirety and you should just go automatically right back to new maintenance. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle with a layer of dealing with the person in front of you. I'm on board with that 100%. The context in which I think is quite contestable is this idea, what you just said, which was 
I'm going to eat more and more and more and more and more and more. I'm going to get out of my deficit and I'm going to eat more and more and I'm going to reverse myself up very slowly. And somehow that process will change how I adapt to lower calories in the future. And so if, if our metabolism has a ceiling and a floor, an amount it can adapt upward or lower before weight change, no amount of finding out what my ceiling is. What's the most I could eat and make? Like at some point you have somebody who's like, I just want to maintain right now. Well, that's kind of synonymous with, let's try and find whatever the higher end of your maintenance is where you can eat the most. That's probably where your happiest life is, probably best recomp there. No amount of doing that will change what it takes by the time you, you have to get on the scale. Like the, the, the actual adaptations genetically that your body's making to get to this level of leanness, it's gonna have to go through that same process again. No, no amount of going up is gonna change how it goes down. And I, and I would have... I'm glad that we're talking about it now because I, I I think bodybuilders have just, bodybuilders, competitors, whatever, have just so much practice with this, right? So much practice of, I went down really lean, I had to do X, and then I spent eight months trying to feel better. I don't know, eight months, nine months, whatever. And then a period of time going back to a very similar place, and guess what? It took a very similar strategy. No amount of whatever I did over there affected what it would have to take me here. And so that's interesting at the same time, not surprising because- this, this idea is seen literally nowhere in the literature outside of people adhering better. And I don't want to go all into all that because I just had Eric Trexler on for like three hours talking about all these scenarios. But it's good to hear from you from a from like a physique competitor perspective that it's like, hey, when it comes down to getting on the stage, like it's going to look a lot very similar to what it looked like last time at, in terms of like when we get down to it, it's going to take a very similar approach. I, I'm not, I'm not I, like it could potentially improve things, but I guess like initially as well, like potentially maybe they lose a little bit better on higher calories um, for a variety of reasons, but sometimes as well, they just, they have maybe spent more time in a surplus or they've improved their body composition as again, from being in a surplus for a year or two. So they've added more muscle mass. They might, might weigh. So again, they start their prep slightly heavier, a little bit more muscle mass, better better body composition or whatever that can also do something, allow for maybe a little bit better momentum at the start. But I always still feel from working with so many people that it does seem inevitably like clockwork, they end up around the same spot um, to be that level of condition. Cool. Yeah, I feel you on that. Let's pivot from reverse diets. I have an interest. I mean, I most of the, the content that I've seen from you in the last couple of years has been and I've had people on here is about this like biomechanics craze. And, you know, I I can imagine that you went through some of the N1 stuff. I've seen a lot of the like, just whatever, like obviously not like regurgitation, but your own spin on some of that stuff, which is great. You do an absolutely amazing job of like just articulating it in a way that's incredibly simple and applicable, which is like the entire beauty of social media is like, can you do that? It's like, can you articulate something in a simple way? So I just want to say you do an amazing job of that. Fantastic. I went, I've done all of the N1 stuff as well. And so I can, I can tell when someone's like, taking an app, like a more of a complex topic and chewing it up and, and bringing it down to something that's more just tangible and, and understandable. So you do an amazing job with that. My question is, um, how have you taken that, this this biomechanics craze, I'll call it, this obsession with technique and exercise selection and biasing this and that, and found a sweet spot with your athletes where it's like, you know, not getting to the point of analysis paralysis. Like I'm curious if you've experienced your with your competitors where, you want to teach them new stuff. You want to be, okay. And, and honestly, this sort of like ability to bias the iliac lat or bias the upper glute max, like that is actually most applicable to your population. I mean, the average mom and pop, like long head, short head, bicep, not really a big concern, but for you guys, definitely a big concern. We want to grow your, your rear delts, not your iliac lat or whatever. How have you found your clients, uh, 
How have they taken to this new sort of ability to be specific? Are they on board with it? Are they like, shut up, just let me train, let me do what I've done? Or are they really open to this sort of stuff? Well, I train, it's funny because I train people, but bikini compares especially different probably to anyone else in the world is that even despite my content and stuff like I put out, I'm the one who, you know, my competitors low bar, 150 kilos, you know, it's like low bar 330. I've had bikini competitors deadlift 180, so 400 pounds, you know, um, I've had girl, yeah, women squat 160 and stuff like that and do lots of weighted pull up. So I'm always seeing myself as more of a strength coach who uses, <laughs> I use, I guess, a, a very much a blended approach. So I kind of, my influence was originally more Poliquin stuff. So I do a lot of periodization like that. And Stefan Kazolt, I'm not sure if you know Stefan Kazolt, you know, I did internships with him in America and stuff like that. But then I kind of took what I learned from them and applied it to a bit more of hypertrophy setting from an athletic performance space. Um so manipulating things like um, a bit more of the periodization volume towards um, not just so the big compound list, but again, adding a bit more working sets, you know, to specific muscle muscles. And so what I like about, I guess, the, the more N1 kind of stuff is that I think it's a really good way to work in synergy with doing such large compounds. So the large compounds for a lot of people is going to be, fantastic it's gonna hit you a lot of bang for buck but the beauty of like the n1 stuff i think is it allows you to then be really specific with what you're trying to work outside of that okay so we've done our pull up for a client cool so what then do we need if we want to do a row cool what well what row do we actually need to target for that physique not just all right let's just do a horizontal pull now but what are we trying to target so when you're when my base is going to be the big lifts i then I then have obviously probably 70%, 80% of the foundation covered. But then by having a really good understanding of small tweaks, it allows you to go really detailed um, for that specific individual and really detailed with the volume you're trying to push and then um, really detailed again with how can I get more volume without generating as much fatigue? You know, you're going to look at like a squat deadlift is going to be a bit more, you know, systemically fatiguing. So how can we get more volume with exercises which are not going to be so fatiguing other than more um, localized. So things like that. So the it's funny, everyone's on really extremes these days. And that's why, you know, I hate social media and stuff like that. I, I really do believe that, you know, everyone's everyone behind the screen does 95% similar stuff. And the, 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 the little things that are different are not really going to make or break most physiques and stuff like that. It's more just kind of, politics of social media and fitness I, I really believe and if you have that foundation of the bases for a majority of people I think it's a fantastic standpoint but the funny thing is and I was talking to Cassim about this other day is that when you're talking about you know the working with competitors and doing more you know fancy exercises the ones I find who actually enjoy the fancy exercise and learning a general population so I work with people for years and years and years and 
something I don't think people give enough credit for is that yeah, everyday lifters, they they take in social media just as much as us. They like learning. They like to feel like they're they're then learning stuff. You know, that's been the basis of people wanting to buy my programs is they want to be educated. They want to feel like they're doing something and they like doing something new. We all do, but if they like understand, hey, cool, I can do this arm position and tweak something, this is actually exciting. So it's actually adds a complexity to your programming that makes people, I guess, have a, a, a bit of a progression of over the years. And so how you can manipulate things and keep people coming back. So as I said, I work with people for years. It doesn't mean you need to throw the kitchen sink at them, but it allows you to, for example, you know, I can periodize an A series being say a high bar squat, but then the B, C, additional series, again, you can have more fun with it. So that's the way I kind of look at stuff. You know, I look at myself as a blended approach. I'm, I'm, a, I'm very much a, I, I take a bit of that. I like this. I like that. I leave what I don't like. And again, it's going to be very much a standpoint of what does an individual need. And for me, I, I much, I, I'm much more of a fan of more things like manipulating things like tempo and stuff like that um, with my programming. So I repeat a lot of the movement patterns over and over again and play with tempo because again, as well, most of my gyms don't have fancy prime equipment and stuff like that. And most of my clients don't do that. You know, a lot of them train in even CrossFit gyms like who and stuff like that. So my foundation is always going to be big, basic barbell dumbbells. But the other stuff is also a fantastic addition to that. I, to me, it complements it. It all works in synergy. Whereas these people these days just think, oh, if you're if you're choosing an iliac pull down, it means you hate pull ups. No, it just means I'm choosing an iliac pull down for this job. You know, and it's like. Oh, how dare you want to train the upper pec with this with this pressing motion? But then bodybuilders have been training upper pec with an incline bench for years, you know. So it's kind of just the yeah. I, I feel like people look for things they don't like, not so much about because they don't like it, but from who it's coming from that they don't like more than anything these days. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, so I run a group program and and we are like you know whatever it's like optimal for hypertrophy or whatnot. But occasionally I'll, I know when I'm like making an intellectual violation. You know, if somebody does a row, God forbid, without chest support, there's like a whole up in arms here. And and I'm and I'm aware of the benefits of a chest support, trust me. But like, if we've been doing, if I'm training a client at home who's got dumbbells and barbells and we've done a chest supported row for nine straight mesocycles and they're fucking sick of it and they want to do a barbell row and then you post a barbell row and someone's like, hey man, barbell row is not optimal for hypertrophy. And I'm like, that's cool, man. This client's been doing this for nine mesocycles in a row. And a barbell row is, you know, got, you know, I, like I wouldn't obviously even bother with this, this long of an explanation, but I think that that's also something that's important. I think that there's like, there's just so much miscommunication of like, okay, like in a complete and utter vacuum, if I had one set to die before I die and I wanted to get the best upper back stimulus, okay, I would use a chest support. But like in a real living setting with like a real human being over the long term, like we're just going to be like what ends up being optimal on paper is, I mean, it's cliche, but it's, it's, it's what's the, what, what is going to get the person to actually stay in the game for long enough. Um, and I find, like you said, the people who really like some of this stuff are, are, I, you said, you said gen pop and I, and I think that too, whatever, just like, like that you actually seen that a lot. Like gen, gen pop is a broad term. These yeah. Days. yeah so non-competitors. To, gen, to me, gen pop is someone who, you know, follows us, us religiously yeah, and yeah. wants to train. They, they want to know, they know tempo. They know what they're doing. You know, Gen Pop is not, you know, your your first beach day of lifting. Kind of, yeah, sure, you know, sure, sure. It's, it's people who want to learn. You know, totally. And I feel like that. And I feel like that actually one of the biggest benefits here, and it's a double edged sword, is actually how intellectually stimulating some of this is. And so, like, you know, you might just 
I don't want to be the, it's so complicated. It has to be so complex person. I don't also want to be the, well, like fuck the optimal stuff. Like who cares what muscle you're biasing? Because at the end of the day, like it, it can be very intellectually stimulating and that actual intellectual stimulation can be enjoyable. And I find with clients all the time that even just talking about it and having a better understanding, one of the biggest things that people asked me for in my group at some point was to like give a little description of like what muscles were working and maybe the resistance profile. And that's like, I'm amazed that anybody would give a shit about that. Um, but it just adds a layer of like specificity of learning of intellectual stimulation that I think has probably more benefit than the actual like end of physique outcomes. Um, but, but I don't want to discount that because I, I don't want to be the like overly simplified person either. Cause there is some stuff here that's really intellectually stimulating. And so, yeah, I've, I've definitely found that the, too. The, th- the thing that, that frustrates me though is who hate on kind of the biomechanic stuff is like, well, Ronnie Coleman didn't do that. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not Ronnie Coleman. You know, you're not a genetic freak. And it's like, oh, well, Ronnie Coleman did this. And A, you're not a genetic freak. You know, Usain Bolt probably is not the greatest sprint coach in the world. He is the greatest sprinter, you know. And just what people do is, and what advanced people do is not always the best way to look and stuff. And then you've got steroids, genetics, how hard they train, all these things. But then I hate the discredit of, of new ideas. And if, if we always discredited new ideas in the world, we wouldn't have social media. We don't have internet. We wouldn't have cars and stuff like that. So that's another thing is that just because someone presents a new way of doing stuff doesn't mean you hate the old way. It doesn't mean the old way shit. It's just going, Hey, here's another tool to add to our tool belt. It doesn't mean it's necessarily, you have to do it. And that's one of the issues I see a lot. And, you know, today, for example, I posted last night that a kneeling squat on a Smith machine is not a good glute exercise, which is just anyone in the world who trained would kind of know this. And as usual, you get people who say, you know, I had this comment from a woman saying, well, you're a moron basically because I do kneeling squats and my glutes grew and I, they're a part of my glute workout where I do squats. I do hip thrusts. I do RDLs. I'm like, so the kneeling squats, the, the key to your glute growth, not how do you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Exercises. But I was like, so and this is the way I look at it. So, and I, I, I just did a story before you put up, I was like, let's say I can give you four exercises for your glutes. You can do a squat, you can do a hip thrust, you can do an RDL and you can do a dumbbell bicep curl. If you do all four exercises, your glutes will grow. Yeah. And yes, they will. Does that make the bicep curl a good glute exercise? No, it isn't. It's just that it happened to be a part of your workout that glue grew. And that's the, again, the correlation versus causation thing that people look at so much like, well, I did it, but maybe you got results in spite of that. And likewise is that just because some people do, you know, you know, a, a deadlift and stuff, could they have done a better exercise? Like, well, I grew a massive back from deadlifts, but could you, was it the fact you deadlifted or you did 30 sets of rows and pull-ups and pull-downs every single week, you know? So that's the funny thing is that there is, there's so much anecdote and there's so much correlation versus causation and stuff like that. And in yeah, you'll definitely see on social media these days is that people are so aggressive about their their thoughts of you're a moron if you think this. And then people quickly then change their idea and then they tell them everyone's a moron for not, you know? And it's like everyone is just just needs to chill a bit, you know, like take a step back and be like, oh, this is I'm presenting my ideas. I think this. And for me, man, like I I just look at I want to. I've got no interest at all in trying to, you know, be kind of jerked off by other trainers and be like, I'm so smart and all that stuff. That doesn't really phase me. I just want to get the best results for clients and I'll do whatever will deliver results. And if something's working, if something new comes out, right, and says, 
I'm, this is not the best way. I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And I'll maybe start to think it. I don't then get rid of everything, which is delivering better results than everyone around and go, well, this one study with 16 people who did a leg extension um, with a 2020 tempo says everything I'm doing is wrong. It's like, well, then why has the stuff I've been doing delivered results? You know what I mean? So that's the way I kind of look at stuff. It's like a new idea comes out. You should think, all right, cool. How can I potentially look at it and apply it? It's, you don't then throw out everything that's been crushing it, killing it for something new with zero proof that it actually is superior. You know what I mean? So that's, that's, I know that's a bit of a rant, but that's just the way I kind of look at the industry at the moment. No, it's a good rant. I think that once you get a, you catch wind of like you upgrade your, your understanding of biomechanics and anatomy and all this stuff, I think a lot of people are afraid to then do anything that violates what the current standards of the industry views as optimal for the sake of any other reason. One, anecdote that this has worked, or two, my client prefers it, or see, they have a specific performance goal. Like, you know, if you, God forbid, somebody does a actual deadlift, like with more knee bend, like a conventional deadlift, it's like complete and utter, like this person doesn't know what they're doing. You should be doing RDLs because this like seven degree difference of knee bend totally changes the game, which I'm not saying they're not different. They're totally different. Um, but I, I even think like I watch people like you've made posts before of like um, just whatever, like maybe maybe it's Lauren doing a, a, a low bar back squat. And it's like, hey, these aren't like, we're not doing like fucking sissy band workouts. And maybe there are some of those like ex- sort of exercises in the overall programming. I'm not even sure, but I'm just saying whether there is or there isn't. But like we might do low bar back squatting, even though like this breaks some like an anatomical biomechanical rule of like what would be optimal for the glutes. Like this is an exercise that, and I, my question to you is actually specifically to that. Like I see a lot of those, your girls, the people that you coach, like just lifting incredibly high loads, training for strength, doing barbell back squats. Um, you know that there's a camp of people that are like, they should hack squat or like, you know, like they should bent knee RDL instead of this like floating trap bar deadlift or whatever. Um, and, and I just like that you're out there who's somebody who's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I understand all of the things you are saying, and I'm still going to coach my clients in a way that's going to get them the best results. And that might mean us occasionally doing heavy doubles or triples of back squats, even though, you know, you can make an, a physiological argument that that's not optimal for hypertrophy. So one, I think that's super cool. I love seeing that. And two, do you find that, that a lot of your physique, uh, competitor clients, are excited to train like that, enjoy training like that, find value in training like that? Yeah, like, you know, I've, you know, I, I've sold over like 140,000 training programs. So, and off the basis of kind of doing that. So, like, I know, not saying like, you know, like, oh my God, that's, a, a, you know, how many that is. It's more so people come to buy knowing that's kind of what they're getting. So, it, I know for a fact on a gigantic level that people are attracted to try and actually be strong and not just being one dimensional with just bodybuilding and stuff like that. So something I'm a huge fan of is if you can look strong with having big muscles, why not just be strong as well? And that's kind of the thing is that a lot of the, a lot of these things I do, like for example, Lauren, we'll just talk about the other day, because we'll use her, the best her glutes ever looked was when she was low bar squatting and snatch grip deficit deadlifts. And primarily that was a foundation and a tiny bit of volume of other stuff, split squats and stuff like that. It wasn't doing all the the stuff these days we do. Oh, granted, she's not trying to compete anymore and train that life, but that's when her glutes were just 10 times better than every other girl on stage when she won the pro um, pro world bikini title. And I say it over and over. And you can often see not that's a great, again, correlation versus causation, but if you look look at a lot of glutes on, say, 
um, bodybuilders, I'm sorry, powerlifters, guys, especially. They've got massive glutes and they're squatting, deadlifting, stuff like that. So it's not like these massive exercises which load up the glutes in a lengthened position are terrible by any means. And when you look at going, all right, so is a low bar squat bad for glutes? Well, why? A, it's going to be a bit more hip dominant. Yes, it's going to be a bit more lower back. But from a standpoint of what's being loaded, it's still going to be a heavily glute-assisted movement. You know, we're literally doing less knee flexion. So we're loading the glutes. But something I'm a big fan of, and, you know, I could be wrong on this, but getting strong I actually learned this from internship from Wolfgang Unsold. I'm not sure if you know him over in Germany. I did a week and he was a six, seven, eight years ago, a really famous strength coach, PICP5, Polygon coach. And he was a big fan of just getting strong for reps. You know, if you get strong for reps, if you have a guy who's doing a hundred kilo bench for five reps, probably in a year and a half time, if he's doing 140 kilos for five, he's probably gotten bigger, but he's going stronger. Strength adaptations is such a key simple way to measure progression especially things like calorie deficit to maintain muscle mass and stuff like that so i'm always just been of the of the thought process that if i can get a client stronger within majority of hypertrophy hypertrophy rep ranges of you because it's a generalized term these days combined with adequate calories recovery and stuff like that they're going to get stronger um they're going to build muscle and there's many ways to obviously look at it and there's many ways to deliver results. And I'm just a big believer that not only will getting stronger do great things for, say, a competitor trying to build muscle, but I think from a longevity standpoint and making training enjoyable, too many people, I think, just think short-term. One of the things, again, so many of my clients, they compete once, they got, as I said, they didn't love it, but they keep training with me for years because they love the training. They love, you know, when when the when the mirror is not the only thing you go to the gym for, I think it training becomes a lot more fun, especially post-comp when you've gone from not being shredded, when you've gone from being shredded and all your self-esteem is tied into how lean you are to all of a sudden now I'm going to build, now I'm uncomfortable, but I notice my weight's going up. I notice I'm lifting like a boss. That keeps you coming back. That keeps you enjoying the gym. So on the topic of, you know, say let's look at back training for women i'm not sure what you do but for me the number one thing women come to me for is they want to do achieve a body weight pull up achieving a body weight pull up or weight pull up is going to do a thousand times more for self-esteem than adding two levels down in the pin of a lat pull down so is a lat pull down potentially going to give you more stability and can target yeah but from enjoyment standpoint friends keep coming back from the sense of accomplishment give me something which is 0.1 less optimal, but 10 times the level of um, a sense of achievement and and clear, clear uh, put it this way. Let's say for a guy, right? If you do a bench press, chances are you know your one rep max, right? But if I said do your, you know, you get lap, measure your lap pull down, do you really measure what you, you remember what you're doing for lap pull down for eight to 10 reps, right? Probably not. But for a woman, for example, and if they go from barely able to do a bodyweight pull-up and in the space of six months, they can do three bodyweight. Um, so they go from not being able to do a bodyweight pull-up at all or even barely slow eccentrics to then nine months' time doing two bodyweight pull-ups to another year's time doing 10 pounds weighted for three or five. There's just so much clear data there of a sense of progression. Is it as optimal potentially as, you know, 
doing all these things and, um, you know, stability and all that? Probably not. But how much less optimal is it versus how much more sense of accomplishment is there? So that's the way I kind of look at stuff. And I honestly just think that a lot of the stuff that comes out these days is not from people who actually train people, especially one-on-one. You know, when you train people one-on-one, you learn so much more about what people like, what they enjoy and stuff like that and what will keep coming back. So there's always a middle ground, but does that mean I'm going to give them just banded booty stuff? No, but does it mean that, hey, let's try and find a blend of approach of, of, of what's enjoyable, what's going to lead to results. And I kind of think of like exercise selection in the gym. It's kind of like a, as, as a diet, right? One meal does not make you make or break your diet. One meal does not make you healthy. One meal does not make you a bad day. So if you have one meal, which fits within your calorie budget over a course of a week, does that mean you're not going to get results? You know? So that's, that's the way I kind of look at training. So I'm not sure if that kind of answers your question in a really long way, but it's, 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 it makes sense in my head. No, it, it makes sense in my head as well. And I'm actually, I'll add a little layer to that that may, that sounds a bit nihilistic, but I actually think, okay, if we're doing pull-ups and we're pushing that progression because we know that one, it's like a pretty solid stimulus, maybe you could, again, theoretically argument of like, yeah, more stability in the lat pull-down with chest support, right? Great, awesome. But I actually am a little bit more nihilistic. I think you, I think the difference between somebody who does a pretty good program that, like you said, has it is. Let's use the diet example, which actually is an analogy that I really love. That's really great. If you have somebody who we can use the diet analogy, works perfect. Now that I'm just going on with it, it's like if you have somebody who diets on like mostly nutritious food with a little bit of junk, junk less nutritious food, or somebody who diets on 100% nutritious food, they look exactly the same. And I think it, in my opinion, with, with training, it's it is. And there are going to be people that want to be want to make technicalities and want to be pedantic. And that that could there is a counter argument to what I'm about to say, but I think if you trained for 15 years and you went you went 75% with what like biomechanically makes and physiologically makes sense, and you went 25% with stuff that's probably still pretty good, but also maybe is more highly prioritized due to enjoyment or like like you said, just like confidence building. It's like whatever things you enjoy doing, whether that's a pull up or a barbell back squat or a little bit of booty band work or whatever. I bet you we snap our fingers 15 years from now, you're in the exact same place just by the rate of muscle growth decline that declines exponentially after a certain point, just genetically. Um, I think if you if both of us train with the perfect biomechanical optimal program for 10 years and another, somebody else is like 75% with like 25% of stuff they like, my bet is you look exactly the same anyway. And you might actually never make it to that 10 year mark if you didn't actually enjoy what you're doing the whole time. And so I don't want to be there, but you got to enjoy it all the time guy. But I think you need to enjoy it enough to be able to keep doing it. I don't know about you. My goal is to help people train for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, not you know, let's do what's optimal. Let me shovel it down your throat for six months, get you some results and you move on your way, you know? And so I definitely see, I have people on the podcast all the time, online coaches, experts in the field. And I can always tell when I've had somebody on who like is boots on the ground, like works with people um, because you could just hear it in the way you talk about this stuff where it's like, listen, I'm, you are a, a, a Matt, you are someone who I can tell is like intellectually, you want to learn more, you want to know everything but that doesn't automatically dictate what you're going to do. And I think that that's really important as well. So I appreciate that, man. We're, we're coming up on time. I want to be respectful of your time. You yeah, drove fucking three go hours long, to be here. Go, go, go as long as you need, man. I, I got to run good. anyway, but it's been super, super fun. I appreciate it. I'm sorry you had to rush over here. I mean, I'm very, very thankful for your time. Let people know where they can follow you. If they don't, they've been living under a rock, but just do it anyway. Sure. Um, you guys can find me. My Instagram is Coach Mark Carroll or coachmarkcarroll.com. And I also have the coach mark carroll podcast and also my education company 
um, is Carol Performance. So you can find us at carolperformance.com. So yeah, either of those guys. And as always, um, yeah, it's a pleasure coming on a podcast and chatting to someone like this. It's, it's fun. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.